listening to the Hope Unlimited Church podcast. We are so honored to connect with you and we pray that you will be encouraged and inspired by this week's message. Uh, Grab your Bible, go to Matthew chapter number three, and then we're going to read down into chapter number four. Matthew's gospel, chapter number three, and then we will read down into chapter number four. We're going to start, I'll start in Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it be, it just dawned on me, I remember last night Stephen asked me what I was going to preach on today. And I don't like to tell people what I'm going to preach on, but he asked. And I was like, because he wanted me to preach something like controversial. Something provocative. Something that Cole would be getting text about for months to come. Set it off. Confuse everybody. Bother people. Make them leave and leave bad reviews on Facebook saying, we're not sure that these people are even Christian. Some things that And I said, I think I'm going to preach on the temptation of Jesus. He said, well, nobody wants to hear about that. (laughs) So I'm sorry, Stephen. Maybe Maybe I'll throw a thing or two in there that'll, you know, make somebody leave. I don't know. We'll see. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, y'all are awfully quiet. Just ready, right? Just ready for the word. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for it is proper for us to proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son. Everybody say son. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is my son. He's baptized. He comes out of the water. And then the voice speaks. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards, he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the son of God, everybody knows this story. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. It's written, he'll give his angels charge concerning you. On their hands, they'll bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus says to him again, it is written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, I promise you we're going somewhere. Hang in here with me. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all their splendor. And he said to them, all these will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. It's written, worship the Lord your God. Serve only him. The devil left. The angels came and they waited on him. Amen. One of the main uh, questions that I get asked a lot, and I know Pastor Cole is going to be doing a series on this, and I believe this is one of the questions that he's going to deal with in depth. So I'm not going to deal with it in depth. I'm just going to touch it and and move on. But one of the questions I get asked a lot is, how do we as Christians, when you see Jesus, 
when you see Jesus' uh, teachings, like the Sermon on the Mount, where he says things about if your enemy smites you on one cheek, offer the other one. Don't retaliate. If you have something against your brother, put your gift down at the altar. Go make it right. It is this call to peace. It is this call to forgiveness. It is this call to reconciliation. It is this call to a table where we all sit together, both friend and enemy alike, and we eat together, and we are reconciled, and we are healed. How do you make sense of that Jesus in light of certain things that we read and we see in the Old Testament because it looks very different from Jesus, right? Go kill everybody. Don't leave anybody. Don't even just kill them. Kill their pets. Kill everything. This is some of the commands that you read in the Old Testament. Joshua, don't leave one hair of anybody's head still standing. And How do we make sense of that in light of Jesus, right? You ever wondered that? No, we don't wonder that. We just read it and we're just like, Turn the page and pray that no unbelievers in our life ask us about that, right? Because we don't want to have to say, we don't know. What do you make of all the violence in the Old Testament? Well, you know his ways are higher than our ways. That's what we say. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Evidently, his thoughts are more demented than our thoughts, right? How do you make sense of these stories? And actually, if we knew how to read the Bible properly, we would not be reading the Bible as a book. We would be, told you, Tom, Tom knows it's coming. He even lowered his head, leading up to what I was about to say. If we were reading the Bible properly, we wouldn't read the Bible as a book. We would read the Bible as Scripture. The word scripture is a word given to us by Paul. It's a word given to us by the, by the early church fathers. The word scripture means something specific. It means that we are reading the Bible in a particular way. You can't just read the Bible. You have to read the Bible rightly. Are you with me? So this is, this is here, here's, here's, here's you a statement to get you all bothered. Quit reading the Bible. Told you. Now you're like, oh, God, what? It is not a Christian practice to read the Bible. It's Christian practice to read the Bible as Scripture. Great evil has been done in the name of being biblical. Great evil has been done because we read the Bible, but we did not read the Bible rightly. And Paul teaches us, the New Testament is very clear on how the scriptures are meant to be read. When Paul, when he, Paul writes his beautiful lines in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about the end of all things, this is a phrase that Paul uses routinely in that, in that passage. He says this, he said, we know that Jesus died and was buried according to the scriptures. And when he says scriptures, he does not mean that that. NIV remix 2022 version in your lap. When he says scriptures, this is what he means. He means the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. He means the Old Testament. And Paul says, we know that Christ died and was buried according to the Old Testament. But we don't read about Jesus dying and being buried in the Old Testament unless we're reading it rightly. He is saying when you read those texts, you have to read them not just as a book. You have to read them as scripture. And when you read them as scripture, you read them looking for Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and we know that he was crucified and raised again from the dead according to those same scriptures. When we read the Old Testament, if we see, we read the Old Testament looking for dinosaurs. Right? And how old is the earth? 
And did Adam have a belly button? And then how did the flood happen? We, we read the Bible for all of these historical events, and Paul is saying that is not the point. The point is you read the, New, the Old Testament. You read those scriptures looking for Jesus. Even Jesus said this, if you would have believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses was writing about me. Moses was writing about me. Paul makes this stunningly clear in 2 Corinthians when he says, we read the scriptures, we read the Old Testament, but when we don't read them looking for Jesus, we read them with a veil over our eyes. We do not see the Bible properly if we are reading it for any other reason than trying to find Christ. But that veil is removed in Jesus. So the Old Testament is one of the greatest places for us to find Jesus. So what do we make of these stories of violence, of Joshua going into the land and killing all of these people? How could God tell somebody that we read it for Jesus? Jesus is our Joshua coming into the land of our lives and killing everything that enslaves us. This is how they taught us to read these texts. Are you with me? You bothered yet? Good, because I'm in the first part of the introduction. It gets way more difficult. All right? Reading the Bible as Scripture. Reading the Bible as Scripture. You can't just read the Bible. You have to read the Bible rightly. This is why the Jewish tradition... Now, Hank, this is where it gets difficult. This is why the Jewish tradition has rabbis. They didn't believe it was good for just anybody to be able to read the texts. Because if you read them incorrectly, they could lead to all sorts of evil. So we have to have teachers that teach people how to read the Bible. This is especially difficult for Pentecostals because we got our Jesus. My Jesus, my Bible, my prayer closet, God's voice to me. But God's voice to you will never violate God's voice to the church. The Spirit and the bride say come. The Spirit and the bride speak in harmony with one another. Okay? So we have to be trained how to read these stories. We have to be trained how to read them. And Paul makes it clear. You read them for Christ. This is Paul's entire story. Paul read the Old Testament in a particular way. When he was Saul, he was saturated in the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. And what do we know about Saul? He was murderous, he was vindictive, and he was full of rage in the name of God. He was killing Christians for the sake of bringing God's kingdom to bear on the earth. And when he sees Jesus, he never reads those stories the same again. When he has his encounter on the Damascus Road, he never reads those stories the same again. All of us, when we read the Bible, we have to have a Damascus Road experience when we read the Bible. You with me? And what changes us, what, de what determines whether or not we are Saul or Paul, is how we see Jesus in those texts. All of that to say, point number two, introduction point number two. We open Matthew's gospel, we jump immediately into the story, and we hear about his baptism. 
when we hear about his baptism, our minds have to race all the way back to the Old Testament. I've preached on Jesus' baptism before. I'm not going to do that again. But we know Jesus is our Joshua. We know Jesus is our Moses. Moses even prophesied, there's coming a prophet like to me that's greater than me. Hebrews affirms this, that Jesus is the new Moses. He's the new Joshua. He's the new Abraham. He is the new. He is the new, a better covenant with better promises. But when we read about Jesus' baptism, there's a little detail in here that I think we miss. And when we miss this detail, we miss what it means to be a son. He is baptized into the water. Now, the story of Joshua, when Joshua crosses over the Jordan to go into the promised land, the waters part for him. When Jesus goes into the Jordan, the waters do not part for him. He has to go down into the waters. Where do we hear another story of somebody having to go down into the waters? The only people that ever went down into the waters were the Egyptians. Jesus is not just identifying with Moses and Joshua. He's also identifying with the Egyptians. His baptism was not him rescuing only the Israelites. It was him rescuing the Egyptians too. Jesus' baptism was not a picture of him just saving God's people. It was a picture of him saving God's enemies. Jesus died so that even the dead would not have to be dead alone. Right? And it's out of those waters of redemption when he identifies not just with the people of God, but with the enemies of God. When he comes from those waters, and this is what he calls fulfilling all righteousness, then the voice comes and says, you're my son. And then immediately he goes into the wilderness. And immediately Satan says, if you are the son, this is my son, goes into the wilderness, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. There's actually a bad translation. Another way of reading this is not Satan saying to him, if you are the son, Satan is not questioning whether or not he's the son. Everybody's just heard this. The text does not say, if you're the son, command these stones to be made bread. It says, since you're the son. In other words, I'm not questioning whether or not you're a son. I'm questioning what you're going to do with the sonship that you possess. What are you going to do with the privilege that you have now that you are a son? How are you going to handle that kind of power? And the word, the, even, the, even the very language, son, you know, uh, Peter says this over and over. He says that we need to give heed to sound words, meaning when we talk about God at all, we need to be talking faithfully about God in agreement with the language that the church has given us, Okay. I'll give you an example. A lot of times when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's fine. Nobody ever talks about it like that in the church, except us. That's an inappropriate way to talk about the Father, Son, and Spirit. The New Testament calls God the Father Almighty and His Son, Jesus Christ. I had somebody ask me the other day, they said, why, why did God choose the language a father and son to talk about the Godhead, the Trinity. 
And I remember, I remember this story. I heard two scholars talking about this, and they were talking about the very reason. Why did God choose the language of father and son? And one scholar spoke up and said, I believe the reason that God chose the language of father and son is because there's not another relationship more intimate than the relationship that a father has with his son. And another scholar spoke up and said, I'm going to disagree. I don't think God chose the language of father and son because there's not another relationship more intimate. I think God chose the language of father and son because there's typically not a relationship more broken than the language of father and son. And God is redeeming that. Since you are the son, command these stones to be made bread. Now, this might not, some of you might not know what I'm talking about when I say this. I grew up in a Christian tradition that always wanted to remind one another about all of the benefits that came to us for being sons of God. There was actually a book. I'm not going to say the name of the book or the author. For those of y'all at lunch, we'll talk about it. And in this book, this is what the book told us to do. This is very popular. You need to go through the New Testament, and every time you see the language in him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in God, you need to underline that and confess all of those scriptures over yourself because those are all the benefits that you have as a son. So we raised up a generation of people that thought they were entitled and owed things because they were a son. I've been with these people. They won't wait in line at airports because the son of God don't wait in line. They'll mistreat waitresses because the son and daughter of God ain't going to be treated like this. When Jesus, when Satan says, since you're the son, command these stones to be made bread. This is what he's saying. Since you are the son, use your power to meet your own needs. And sonship is not leverage before God to get your needs met. That's not what sonship means. We're not entitled to good things because we're a son. Even Jesus said, I will make the sun shine on the just and the unjust, and I will make it rain on the just and the unjust, and the sparrows don't do a thing, and I still make sure they get taken care of. Since you're the son, use that ability, use that privilege, use that position to get more stuff. This is where the prosperity gospel missed it because they believe I'm entitled to more stuff because I am a son of God. And we need the sons of God to rise up in the earth. And then Satan takes this further and says, since you're the son, throw yourself down off the temple. The angels will come and pick you up. Jesus even says this later on when he's on the cross. I could call angels to come do this. I could call angels to come deliver me. But because you're a son, not only does it mean you don't get to use your power, your position as leverage to get what you want, it also means that being a son does not protect you from the vulnerability of being human. I was told years ago, when I, when I was a teenager, we used to have this, this whole, there was an entire movement that preached that Christians should never be broke. And I don't think you should be broke. But most of the time when you're broke, it's not because of the devil. 
is because of American Express. Your problem's not a spirit. It's an interest rate. You with me? Christians should never be broke. And they also preach this. Christians should never struggle. They should never suffer. They should never suffer. And I used to believe that until I started living life. I was even told as a young man, this is what I was told, because they, they believe that the more word you knew, the more words you had in you, the more scriptures you had in the more New Testament you had in the more you named it and claimed it and blabbed it, stabbed it, grabbed it, confessed it, possessed it, walk around it, talk to it, blow the trumpet and Zion, whoa, everything you got. Some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. You're so lucky. You don't have to detox like a drug addict. But I had somebody tell me this. They said, you know, the more scripture you know, you know what God's will is for your life. You can use your faith to get whatever you want. You need an airplane. It's already existing up in the spirit realm. You just got to call down by faith. You need a million dollars. It's already existing in the spirit realm. Just name it, claim it. Blow the trumpet. Anoint it. Talk to it. Speak to it. Lay on it. Fall on it. Shout on it. Dance on it. Whatever you got. And I had this guy tell me because they believed the more information you had, the more, the more scripture you knew, you could use those scriptures to leverage, as leverage, to get God to do things. You would basically, in effect, use the Bible as a gun and put it to God's head and say, you promised me this. Now give it to me. Right? And so I had somebody tell me this. He said, if you're a preacher, if you're suffering, it's because you're stupid. Because if you knew enough, your faith would get you out of that suffering. Now, we wouldn't say it that explicitly. But there are still strains of our thinking that believe because we're sons, we're above the law. And we're not. I saw this most explicit. Well, let me see if, see if I should say that. We think we're exempt from the vulnerability of being human. So when your person doesn't win an election, or when your store wants you to wear a mask, and I'm not saying whether you should or shouldn't. I don't give a flip who you voted for either. I'm speaking to a mentality that says, we believe because we're Christians, different rules apply to us. And they do not. We become infuriated. Infuriated. When a pastor calling for violence gets banned from Facebook. Because we don't believe in cancel culture. Until Disney puts out a movie that we don't like. And now we believe in cancel culture. I grew up boycotting UPS and Procter and Gamble because they were secretly ran by some satanic cult that somebody found in some website somewhere. I'm not kidding. The rules don't apply to us because we're sons of God. And that is a perversion 
of sonship. And then Satan tempts him finally with this. Since you're the son, I'm going to give you all these kingdoms. You're going to have all the power in the world, which is exactly what we are hungry for. I probably shouldn't say this, but here it is. I get, I get, I get bothered beyond words when I see Christians trying to use Jesus as leverage to win elections. Jesus is not a campaign strategy. Christianity is not meant to be useful in that way. I'm not voting for you because you love Jesus. I love Jesus too. I don't need to be the president. Okay? We need somebody in office that can pray. I can pray. And I don't need to be running things. Is this provocative enough, Steve? <laughs> I'm swinging for the fence, man. I've already seen some people making eye contact. Like, we won't be back. I'm sorry, Cole. Just the moment the church experiences a swell of growth, it's my turn to come. Those of you that won't be here next time I'm here, it was a pleasure having you. He tempts him with power. I'm going to give you all the... There's actually an entire movement in the Pentecostal world right now that says what God's doing in the world is we've divided up society into seven mountains of power. Okay? We've got the government mountain and the business mountain and the media mountain and the religion mountain. And I don't remember all the other mountains. And the way God's kingdom is going to be advanced is if we get Christians born again, spirit filled, tongue talking, fire breathing, sin hating, people hating. <laughs> Leaders on top of these mountains. That's how God's kingdom's going to come. And so it's a grasp for power. And Jesus was offered all of the power in the world and said no. To be a son means we reject worldly power because God's kingdom does not come through worldly power. Things are not going to be fixed if your guy or gal gets elected. F quit telling yourself for the rest of your life that the answer for our country is getting your favorite person elected. It most certainly is not. Jesus rejects worldly power. And after he rejects these things as a son... Satan flees. Resisting power is resisting Satan. Then the angels come and minister to him. Jesus is telling us, Matthew's telling us, this is what sonship is. When you baptize your life in the brokenness of others, this is what sonship means. We, we, want, we, want to, we want to establish the kingdom of God by power because 
manifesting God's kingdom through suffering love is too much to ask. And it's too hard to do. The kingdom is not going to be established from some building in Washington or in Nashville. The kingdom's going to be established around your table, bringing, opening yourself up to everybody that is not like you. It's saying there is a table for us to sit together and be healed and be reconciled. Oh, I heard a great, y'all know about the situation in, in, in with, with Ukraine and Russia. You, you know about this. I read a great theologian the other day, and some of you won't know what this means, but some of you that we talk, you'll know what I mean. He said, the only answer for war is the Eucharist. The only answer for war is a communion table where we can sit together and break the body and drink the cup together and be healed. That is the answer, not power. Baptizing our life, not just giving ourselves over, being swallowed up in the abyss of others suffering, not just our friends suffering, but our enemies suffering. Being swallowed up in their abyss, that is, what, that is what caused God to call Jesus son to make a pronouncement. Now you are my son. We are the most Christian that we've ever been. This is going to bother you, and it's fine. We are the most Christian that we've ever been when we are more concerned about other people's walk with God than we are our own. We are more, the, we are more Christian when we want others to know God more than we want to know God. This is what Paul means when he says, I would, Charlie, throw that verse up there for me in the Passion Translation. I read this verse for years and it's, it bothered me deeply. Is it up there? There it is. I was looking back there and it's not there. It just tells me I'm going over my tongue. This is Paul writing. For my grief is so intense that I wish that I would be accursed, cut off from the Messiah, if it would mean that you, my people, would come to faith in him. If we really know God, then we want others to know God more than we know God. This is what sonship is. I know we wanted to leverage it to get more stuff or to get more power or to get more authority. And Jesus rejects all of that. If you're not good and confused yet, let me give you one more story. And I'll shut up with this. If there's going to be a musician or somebody come up, you guys can come on up. Just leave that scripture up there, Charlie, if you would. There's a great author by the name of Flannery O'Connor. If you've never read her stuff, you need to read her stuff. She writes great short stories. And she has a short story. Everybody look at me. I'm ending with this. You don't have to endure anymore. You made it. She wrote a short story, and the name of the short story is The Temple of the Holy Ghost. The Temple of the Holy Ghost. And in this story, it's the story of a young girl, about 12 years old. And she's in a small town, and the circus is coming through town. And as the circus is coming through, bring that down just a bit. As the circus is coming through, there's a person that's a part of the circus that's an intersexed individual born with both male and female 
looking at it. And they're the sideshow of the circus, this person. They're the freak. They're the freak show at the circus. And so this 12-year-old girl hears about it, but she doesn't really know what it means. She just heard that there's a freak in town, and everybody's going to the circus and paying money to see the freak. The little girl's a Catholic girl. She goes to church that morning. And in their service, as they're ending the service, they start to take communion together, to take the Lord's Supper together. And as the priest lifts up the bread to consecrate it, to pronounce the words of institution, the little girl looks up at the bread and immediately by the Spirit, she's taken to the circus. And she hears the freak in the back screaming and crying, saying, but I thought God made me this way. But I thought God made me this way. And what she's trying to communicate in the story is the more we see him, he immediately turns our attention to the freaks. The more we are drawn up into relationship with God, the more immediately he turns our face to others. Because as we are drawn up into relationship with God, we take on his nature, and his nature is always about others. That is what being a son means. You went down into the waters for the sake of redeeming not just your friends, not just your people, but your enemies. You went down into the waters to redeem not just your race, but all races. You are my son. Because that kind of action is just like me. Being a son doesn't mean you get delivered from all of the inconveniences of the world. being a son doesn't mean you're entitled to a front spot parking everywhere you go glory to God Stephen used to do that we'd pull up somewhere we'd be driving somewhere and go front spot parking favor Lord in Jesus name and it happened it'd be so annoying he's like see I'm a son I'm God's favor that's not what sonship is. and he was doing that joking. sonship is not you get delivered from all the frustrations of life sonship means I have seen him and when I've seen him he immediately it turns my attention to them not just to the Israelites, but to the Egyptians. I'll tell you this. I'm just going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you one more. You can stand. We, uh, we moved back to Hamilton, Alabama, and when we moved, uh, One of my first acts upon moving back to Alabama was to buy a Traeger. A Traeger. You know what a Traeger is? If you don't, you should. I bought the most expensive one they made at the time. It's a grill, if you don't know what that is. It was was absurdly expensive. So I buy this grill. I'm living my best life. 
and we're staying at a house of, of one of our family members. We end up buying a house. I'm moving the Traeger. I load the Traeger up in the back of a truck and I'm driving to take it to the new house. This thing is unbelievably heavy and large. And I'm driving and I hit a bump. Hard. Boom. Don't think anything of it. I pull up at home and my wife goes, where's the grill? I look in the back of the truck and it's been raptured. I'm like, oh my God. I hit a bump, it fell out. I get in the truck, I speed back down the highway. And when I speed back down the highway, there are two people there picking it up. They weren't stealing it. I thought they were in a minute. I was about to about to choke somebody out. And when I got there, I was greeted by a person who obviously has very severe health issues. And I didn't know if this person was male or female. Um, it was a very different experience. Not because... I just didn't know. And I still don't know. I saw them at Walmart the other day. And uh, when you think Alabama, like rural Alabama, it's that. But I remember meeting them. They were the most helpful people ever. They were kind. They were gracious. I was rebuked because thank you for this. Thank you for your help. But would I be willing to eat dinner with you? Would I be willing to cook you something on this grill? Even though if somebody were to see me and you at a restaurant together, they'd have more questions about me than they would you. Our hearts are not turned toward those people. Our hearts are not turned to others. It's not Christian fellowship when you and six buddies go hang out. It's Christian fellowship when you and six strangers go hang out. Or not just you and six strangers. You and six people with a different sexual orientation. Or a different race. Or a different belief system. Or a different religion entirely. That's Christian. Being immersed not just in the lives of people like us. But being immersed in the lives of people nothing like you. Not because they're your project. simply because the pain in their life you're called to bear it think of what Paul says in Galatians he says I'm travailing in birth so that Christ is formed in you I'm carrying the pain so that fruit is born in you if it doesn't touch us it's not our problem 
And there couldn't be anything more unchristian than that. This is what Paul means when he says, bear one another's burdens. Shoulder somebody else's load. Jesus shouldered the load for the world. And you can't talk to your neighbor who you think might be Muslim. What are we even doing? We're not grasping for power. We don't need power. We don't need positions. We don't need policies. We reject entitlement. We're not exempt from anything. And we're certainly not above anybody. Make us the servants of all. Let us give our lives as a ransom. Let us not seek to be ministered to, but to minister and to give our lives for many. Jesus, turn our attention to the most broken and the most vulnerable. Turn our attention to the marginalized. Turn our attention to the most excluded among us. The people that we treat as modern day lepers. Turn our attention to them. And let us reject anything that pretends to be Christian that also rejects those people. We want to be sons. We want to be daughters. We want to be swallowed up in the waters of their burdens. Come on, church. Bring the the music down just a little bit. Bring the music down just a little bit. I want you to honestly, before God, pray that with me. We want to be swallowed up swallowed up in the burdens of others in the brokenness of others in the dysfunction of others the inner we want to be swallowed up in the intercession of others let me let me tell you this i, pr- I promise you i'm shutting up i'm so sorry i promise i'm shutting up. let me tell you this i had a, a dear professor friend of mine he's a theologian he's a professor he was teaching along these lines at a school at the school and after class, uh, two female students went to Walmart. They had to go get some things from Walmart. And as they're in Walmart, they go in to get their items, and then they go to the checkout line. And as soon as they go to the checkout line, there's a man in front of them, and as soon as they walk up, they notice, they know that he's drunk. He's highly intoxicated you could tell he had not bathed in some time his clothes were tattered he 
man's hair had not been washed in who knows when. And one of the female students said, I don't know any other else, I don't know any other way to say this other than the moment I saw him, I was overcome by his shame. I felt his shame for him. And she just fell on the floor praying, not making a spectacle, not being super Pentecostal. I was overwhelmed. For a moment, I was overwhelmed by the same shame that he carries every single day of his life. That is the Christian life. That is what sons and daughters do. And we all know we're honest before God. We all know what our knee-jerk reaction would be to somebody that we saw in that condition. Listen at how we talk about the addicted. Listen at how we talk about the homeless. I've talked to Christians before in this city. I'm not going downtown on the weekends because I get bothered by all these homeless people. Well, God forbid you be disrupted. God forbid your Christianity get ruffled kidding me that's what sonship is all about let us be swallowed up in their shame amen thank you for listening to this week's message if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to give please visit hopeunlimited.church give to stay connected follow us on facebook and instagram at hope unlimited church